Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast, episode 2, with me, your host, Des Latham. In this episode, we'll learn about the attempts by Kruger and the Free State leadership to avoid war while continuing to deny English speakers the vote in the two Boer republics, the Transvaal and the Free State, while Sir Alfred Milner, the governor of the Cape, pushes for intervention. We'll take a closer look at how the two sides shaped up and what happened at the Bloemfontein Convention. In the previous podcast, we saw how the gold miners and English speakers in Johannesburg wanted Britain to step in and lay claim to the Transvaal. London had already had its fingers burnt by underestimating the Boers in the First War in 1887 when they were roundly defeated at the Battle of Majuba. So officials back in England needed further convincing. Furthermore, there were political battles being fought between conservative and liberal in England. Some wanted direct engagement and war, others wanted nothing to do with South African affairs. In early 1899, Cape Governor-General Alfred Milner was growing frustrated that British public sentiment hadn't lashed itself into a frenzy over the treatment of the Aitlanders. He sent a note to Chamberlain warning about a lack of action, but by then Chamberlain was more concerned about what was going on politically at home. In March of 1899, Percy Fitzpatrick arrived in Cape Town. We've met him already, the famous author of Jock of the Bushveld, who had been sent to Britain to pass on the details of Kruger's deal to Chamberlain and who wanted British intervention at all costs. Fitzpatrick went straight to Milner's home to explain that in exchange for Eightlander vote, Kruger wanted the British to make political concessions in turn. The Transvaal president was against granting land rights to Cape Coloreds and Indians, and he wanted the anti-Boer press silenced. He also he wanted the South African League repudiated. The SA League had been hard at work since Tom Edgar, the six foot six eightlander who was shot by the Zops or the State Afrikaans Republic Police before Christmas the year before, and mobs had turned out in Johannesburg under the banner of the SA League, demanding the British government act. Kruger's government wanted these propagandists out. Fitzpatrick told a meeting of businessmen from Johannesburg who'd gathered in Cape Town that Kruger was lying. He never meant to grant the vote to the English at all. Rhodes and others who'd attended the meeting agreed. Twenty-four men of the Rand, the gold mining area, had been invited to the private meeting, and they agreed that Kruger must be ordered to accept that all Aitlanders who could prove five years' residency retrospectively must be granted the right to vote immediately. Fitzpatrick and the warmongers knew he would never agree without a counter-demand. The new Randlord position, which formed the basis of the British position, was handed over to the Boer authorities on March 27th. The next five weeks were nerve-wracking for many involved. The British public failed to react over the Eightlander treatment, and the pre-Christmas shooting of Tom Edgar became a distant memory. South Africa was only slightly interesting in the midst of a sea of global events. While the telegraph messages between Cape Town and London were virtually instant in 1899, it took three weeks for newspapers from the UK to reach Africa, and when Milner read these, he realised he was failing in his bid to ramp up sentiment in Britain. Milner was fixated by what was known as the enormous material value of the thing involved. The thing was £700 million of gold reserves which could be used by the British economy. Fitzpatrick headed back to Johannesburg to dutifully crank up eight London noise. Throughout April 1899, there were protests and marches in the City of Gold. By mid-April, Milner was beside himself. Chamberlain, the colonial secretary, was slowly coming around to Milner's point of view. 
He asked Milner for an update on the situation, and in true yellow press style, the Cape Governor obliged. Milner had been the former assistant editor of the Paul Mall Gazette and knew just how to pen a piece of rabble-rousing journalism, except that it was supposed to be a formal and accurate assessment of an issue by a thoughtful colonial thinker. Milner wrote, The case for intervention is overwhelming. The spectacle of thousands of British subjects kept permanently in the position of helots, calling vainly to Her Majesty's government for redress, a ceaseless stream of malignant lies about the intentions of the British government. That cable has become known as the helot dispatches. Milner personally described the moment as breaking the crockery, or as we'd say, throwing his toys out of his cot. By May 9th, 1899, the British cabinet would sit on the question of intervention in South Africa following Milner's helot dispatches. Back in the Cape, it was raining. Winter had arrived early. It was cold and blustery. Milner found, too, that his winter was frustrating and buffeting. Later on that day, Milner mounted his horse for a short ride along with Cecil John Rhodes from the mining magnate's airy, Grutaskil, towards the higher reaches of Table Mountain. Then the wind had cleared and the grey cloud had moved and by all reports revealed a remarkable view. When they rode back down, they found a cable from London which read, The dispatch is approved. We have adopted your suggestion. Which meant London had agreed intervention was necessary. But Milner would not win his war so easily. Within two weeks, the moderate Afrikaners based in the Cape, who were deeply concerned by the talk of war, proposed a meeting between Milner and Kruger in the Free State Republic capital, Bloemfontein, the name which means the spring containing flowers. They hoped a face-to-face negotiation would solve the impasse. Milner promised Chamberlain that he would be scrupulously moderate. He certainly had his fingers crossed behind his back. The meeting was set for the 30th of May through to the 6th of June 1899, with both Kruger and Milner travelling towards Bloemfontein from opposite ends of South Africa on board two trains. Milner from Cape Town, Kruger from Pretoria. President Oom Paul Kruger was joined by the State Attorney Jan Smuts. Both had welcomed members of the Transvaal Executive before departing and Kruger issued his homely parable. He said, The clean water is the trustworthy Aitlanders, and through our laws they've come to join us, and the dirty water is the untrusty Aitlanders, they shall stay outside. Kruger wanted peace. He knew that he faced one of the world's most powerful empires of all time that had the ability to crush the fledgling Boer republics. However, he was also a war horse who was to prove a worthy and canny opponent to the British forces. Secretly, he was pessimistic about the offer to attend any meeting with Milner, and equally pessimistic about avoiding conflict. Smuts was even more pessimistic, and he wrote, War is unavoidable, or will soon become so, not because of any cause, but because the enemy is brazen enough not to wait for any cause. Sir Alfred Milner was on board his own train on the 30th of May, but was to hold a secret meeting at the railway crossing at Daar, which means the ear in the north of the Cape, and meeting Milner to have his ear was Fitzpatrick's close political ally R.C. Hull, an Aitlander lawyer. Milner then told Hull that he was sure this time the crisis would precipitate a solution for the side of the empire. So both parties were steaming on their long journeys towards each other, sensing war was inevitable, but going through the motions. 
Milner's game was devious. He had decided that the Transvaal Republic should be ruled as a British crown colony. There was gold, after all. The concept was not new. Britain had ruled Egypt in the same way and was to be part of the growing white empire of England that stretched across the globe. At the moment that that happened, Milner believed he would achieve his dream of eternal fame, bringing treasure for his empire. Chamberlain wanted Kruger to climb down publicly and thereby avoid war, but was quite prepared to call on the army to mobilise. Milner, on the other hand, wanted a war of annexation, and he had set a trap for old man Kruger. But old man Kruger was no fool, and he had a few negotiation traps up his sleeve too. As the two sides travelled to their meeting, the icy cold grey and brown felt enveloped them. Any tactician would have realised that going to war at this point would favour the British and not the Boers, who would have to rely on their mobile forces and living off the land. Winter in the South African highlands means very little grass or greenery and temperatures often falling to below freezing. Bloemfontein in 1899 was a delightful small city, jacarandas running along the main street and the old British fort on the copy or small hill above. Its wealth lay in the fact that it was a transport point along the railway between Cape Town and Johannesburg and it was fitting that the meeting between Milner and Kruger took place at the railway station with a room big enough to hold the participants. Milner's assistant called the meeting a palaver with a refractory chief, but Milner was not as arrogant or foolish enough to underestimate Kruger. The Boer president was what Pakenham describes as an anachronism, a giant, so Milner set about setting up the giant. On Wednesday, Milner began by lying about wanting no conflict, and Kruger spent the entire afternoon replying to Milner, sensing his deviousness. On Thursday, Milner pointed out that the Boers were arming themselves, Kruger pointed out that the British had attacked him in the Jameson raid and that was hardly inspiring peace. Milner demanded the five-year backdated franchise for English speakers totaling around 60,000. Kruger said that would be suicide for his folk. On Friday, Kruger whipped out a reform bill which surprised Milner and which supported the vote for the Eightlanders, but in turn demanded the entire Republic of Swaziland and reparations from the British for the Jameson raid amounting to £1.6 million. Milner brushed Kruger aside, saying he'd prefer the Eightlanders to have some form of self-rule. Kruger said Eightlanders were like naughty children. In his words, if you give them a finger, they will want the whole hand, he said. Saturday and the fourth day, Milner was tiring of the to and fro. Kruger sat impassive. Nothing was achieved, and they adjourned until Monday. It was on that day that Kruger stood before Milner and said, It is our country that you want. Milner replied, This conference is at an end and there is no obligation on either side arising from it. It was time to gear up for the coming war. Milner harbored an intense belief that the British would overrun the Boers before too many of his men would die. He was completely wrong, but the reality of the campaign would drag on for three years, and that was still to begin. The War Office wasn't interested in Milner's initial request to replace the Commander-in-Chief in in South Africa, General Butler. They were to change their mind quite rapidly. Milner asked for more competent officers to be sent to the strategic towns of Mafeking and Kimberley. Furthermore, Milner was hoping for an overwhelming large British force to be dispatched so that the Boers were overawed and just give up. 10,000 men would do, he thought, particularly as they'd have to retrace the steps of the first disastrous British army defeat by marching back to the northern Natal region through Majuba and over the Majuba mountain, 
where General Kali had come to grief and be highly motivated, therefore, to beat the Boers. Milner was certain about three main issues. One, the size of the force. Two, who should lead. And three, where to station them. Milner sent his next dispatch, informing the war office that if they followed his advice, there would be no war. But Kruger was preparing. He had ordered almost all required weapons from the Germans, except for enough field guns or artillery pieces. The 72 artillery pieces from the Creosot factory were only due in July 1899. The President of the Transvaal Republic was confident that if he struck first, the shock may propel him and his people to an unlikely victory. However, his ally, the Free State Republic leadership, had been vacillating, as they didn't have the same problems with Eightlanders. So just to make sure that Free Staters would fight and remind them of their responsibility, Kruger sent them half a million Morser cartridges. Smuts, meanwhile, had summed up Milner's role as he watched the Britain during the Bloemfontein negotiations. Smuts said, There is something in his intelligent eyes that tells me he is very dangerous. As we'll see, real information about either army, about the other, would lead to many, many mistakes on both sides. But initially, the British suffered from misconceptions about their own superiority on the battlefield. Milner was probably unaware of just how unprepared his country was for a full-scale conflict. There was no proper plan for an invasion of South Africa. This was a really shocking mistake. The Secretary for War, Lord Lansdowne, had initially poo-pooed the possibility of fighting. The Commander-in-Chief of the British Army then, Field Marshal Lord Walsley, proposed on June 8, 1899, that the whole of Redverse Buller's 1st Army Corps and a cavalry division should be sent out, amounting to 35,000 troops. Buller was one of the few commanders in Britain who had had experience in South Africa. He was also very concerned by the perception that the Boers would be a pushover. The reality was the British Army was frail by international standards. It last fought a proper war against Napoleon 90 years before and could call on a grand total of 314,000 men. To understand just how such a large empire was out of sync with other European nations, consider Germany's army at this stage of 3 million, Russia's 10 million and France's 4 million. The overseas battles in Egypt and the Sudan were small affairs against tribesmen who were not cohesive nor who planned across a broad front and that had lulled the British into a false sense of security. And the Boers were masters of mobility while understanding the value of individual action. Wolseley also vacillated but managed to appoint Major General Penn Simons from India to the position of General Officer Commanding of Natal, GOC. It was one of the many blunders by a slew of military leadership as Simons knew nothing about South Africa and was overly aggressive. Walsley believed Kruger could call in a total of around 54,000 in total across South Africa. The real figure was closer to 64,000. Of these, the British Army believed around 34,000 would be mobilized. Surprisingly, they were quite accurate on that score, as were the assessments of the firearms held by the Boers, the latest Morses, the German rifle that was one of the most accurate and light of all weapons at the time. Where their intelligence failed miserably was in analysis of the Boers as a fighting force. Documents pointed out that the Boers had fought blacks in South Africa in various confrontations continuously. Their decision about the Boers' position was based on race. They said because the Boers had been fighting blacks, therefore their victories stood for nothing. That deep-seated racism of the time was to backfire violently. 
They believed the Boer generals were unable to command large groups of soldiers, nor could they cope with the logistics required for a modern war. Furthermore, the British intelligence believed the Boers' artillery was inferior to their own, the Krupp and Creosote versus British Armstrongs. That was partly true, as we'll see. Add the dread the Boers had of the British cavalry and the fact that much of South Africa was flat, open felt, well, victory was certain, felt the British. While the armies prepared, politically, it was another two months of confusion between July and the end of September. Newspapers reported that Kruger now agreed to grant citizenship retroactively to those who'd been in the Transvaal for at least seven years, but it was too little too late. The British cabinet gathered and agreed that it was just political manoeuvring by Kruger and Secretary of War Lansdowne was incredulous at Walsley's suggestion the Boers could mobilise 10,000 men to invade Natal. So they cobbled together a mixture of British soldiers based across their colonies. From India came the King's Royal Rifles, the first Gloucesters, the first Devonshires, the first Irish from Alexandria and Egypt, the first Border Regiment from Malta, and the second Rifle Brigade from Crete. 10,000 soldiers with more promised, so that in total there would be 15,000 British troops in Natal. Simons told his commanding officers he could defend Natal with 5,000. This was a hopelessly optimistic assessment. By now, General Butler had been sacked, as Milner requested. However, the leadership squabbles, which bedeviled the English, now began to affect their planning. Redverse Buller was supposed to head up the army in South Africa, but hated his colleague Lansdowne. Unlike the rest of his colleagues, Buller had a working knowledge of the Boers. He'd fought in the Eastern Cape with Boers and sent an urgent message to Lansdowne requesting more troops to be sent to Natal. Buller sensed the danger none of his other colleagues appeared to fully appreciate. Lansdowne mistakenly thought Buller was soft on the Boer. As we thundered towards war, a quick note about the two commanders sent to head up the British forces in Natal. They were to prove unable to function in the heat of the African felt. Sir George White, a 64-year-old limping quartermaster general, was sent to Natal as GOC and he chose Colonel Rawlings and Colonel Hamilton as his staff officers. White was extremely pale. His skin burnt easily. He was a country gentleman from Northern Ireland. They boarded their vessels for the three-week trip to Cape Town blissfully unaware that before they landed on the 3rd of October 1899, the Boers would gather in strength on the Cape and Natal borders. Hamilton, on the other hand, would be far more valuable. Waiting for the sunburnt white at Cape Town Harbour was Milner, who was a mess of nerves. Simons, the firebrand aggressive commander in Natal, had decided to move early and sent a brigade to Dundee in northern Natal beyond Ladysmith on the 25th of September 1899. While that appeared to wrest the initiative from the Boers, in reality, all he'd managed to do was weaken his Natal force. It was now that the full realisation of South Africa's harsh conflict hit home. White rushed to Durban, taking a three-day train trip between Cape Town and East London, then a boat to the Natal port. On the way, the train stopped a number of times to allow refugees from Johannesburg to pass. It also gave him time to view the Cape Afrikaners close up. They disturbed him with their aggressive manner, long rifles, slouch hats. He realised, too, that he was not the right leader at this point and wrote to his wife. Goodbye, dear. We should have 20,000 more troops in South Africa. The cabinet have only themselves to blame if we have to reconquer this country from the sea. White had grasped Milner's crucial three questions. White was the wrong commander. Simons had pushed too far forward. And reinforcements were inadequate.
we're going to hear from a range of diverse voices in this series. One of the unusual voices writing at the time was a precocious 14-year-old schoolgirl, Frieda Schlossberg. She was attending a girls' boarding school in Pretoria, the capital of the Transvaal Republic. And in September 1899, she writes, There's not much study going on. Everybody is excited, expecting war to break out, and almost every class is divided into pro-Boers and pro-Britishers. We discuss, argue and quarrel, and sometimes almost fight. There are fearful rumours that 100,000 British soldiers are at Charlestown on the Natal Transvaal border with 10,000 balloons and flying machines. That was an exaggeration. Next week, we'll turn to the start of the shooting in October 1899 and see how quickly matters escalate for the British. I'm Des Latham. Join me next week for the third instalment of the Anglo-Boer War. You can follow the conversation on Twitter at Des Latham.